Alright. Episode 15 of Herpetological Highs. Here we are. Um, I'm Ben Marshall, as always, and co-hosting is Tom Major. Uh, we've got an episode all about sea snakes this week, right? Yep, sea snakes. Um, I didn't know anything about sea snakes prior to this, did you? Um, no, to be honest, sea snakes are pretty low on my list of snakes because they're the most soggy of snakes. And well, as you all know, snake. the soggier the animal, the less interest I have in it. <laughs> and also, they're kind of quite low down in an alphabetical list of snakes too. So it's only natural that we would come to them later and sooner. Well, I mean, it's no Xenopeltis, but okay. <laughs> it's no Zominus. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, these are the sea snakes. They've been, you know, they've been around for quite a long time. I had no idea. They've been around since the Cretaceous period. 70 million years ago they first evolved and um some of the first sea snakes the ancient sea snakes had really cool names i read about this a little bit um, <laughs> and then they you know tried to rebrand themselves and failed miserably they tried to be too cool <laughs> names got worse yeah sounds about, Just right. about right well there was a primitive there was a really primitive one called uh pachyrachis problematicus <laughs> how wicked is that and it's because it was really primitive and it actually had legs and a pelvis. And nice. so the problematicus was they couldn't decide what it was. Um, obviously, they later decided it was it was a really primitive snake that still had the kind of semi vestigial pelvis and legs. Mm. Um, and then there was another one, which is a bit more recent, called Paleophis Colosseus, which just means colossal ancient snake, um, which is pretty on point because it was as many as 10 meters long. Hmm. So we're not talking Titanoboa size, but still pretty beefy. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure there's a, the, the estimates for Titanoboa, where, where they lie, because... Um... I had a very interesting thought the other day. And by the other day, I mean two days ago. And a lot of the Titanoboa stuff is based off spine, uh, like vertebrate size, isn't it? Yes, they kind of scale them up. And I don't know if you've ever seen... The vertebrate to body ratio of a Bungaris uh, fasciatus, but oh boy, they are fat. They have massive backbones compared really? to how fat that snake should be. Yeah, like just. I mean, the only way I sort of put my mind to rest was thinking, no, don't worry, Titanoboa wasn't related to Bungaris. It's fine. They're much more distant. Treat deal with the boas and the anacondas. But if it had a spine like a Bungaris, it wouldn't have nearly been as big. Those things have got such a meaty backbone. And like the scales are infused to the bone. Really? Yeah. Or at least, you know, the guys here couldn't get them off. Wow. That's terrifying. Imagine a 40 foot long Bungaris. Mm. Imagine a 5 foot long Bungaris. Still pretty yeah, daunting. They, yeah, and they spray out poo, which has got king cobra scales in it. That's pretty badass. <laughs> but sea snakes. Completely uh, going yes. off on a tangent. Sea snakes. Well, actually, it's not that much of a tangent because crates, some of the sea snakes are crates. So we're kind of, we're circling back. There's 70 species of so-called sea snakes. They're all from the family Elapidae, which is, you know, as we just said, crates, uh, coral snakes, cobras. Um, Fixed fang and all, badasses. Yeah, the, these uh, proteroglyphous snakes with the, yeah, front fixed fangs. And uh, yeah, there's 70 species, like I said, 60 are from the subfamily Hydrophinae and another eight are from Latacordinae. And uh, the Latacordine ones are the kind of sea crates, so there's eight of those, and they are kind of closely related to Australian and Asian elapids, um, and they invaded marine habitats. They didn't invade the marine habitats. Yeah, they they did. kind of evolved. They knew separately. exactly what they were doing. <laughs> now they went back and they invaded. Yeah, an amphibious assault. An amphibious assault because the latacordine sea snakes, the crates, they actually go back on land sometimes to like shed their skin, to rest up, digest prey, to lay their eggs. Whereas the Hydrophinae, which is the majority of the species, um, they never go onto land. They are completely aquatic, well, marine, 
and they give birth to live fully formed young in the water. Um, nice. They don't even consider land. I actually saw a video of one on land and it was tragic. It was trying to swim. It was just this like stereotypical kind of sinuous swimming motion, but it was going nowhere because it was on the beach and it was pretty tragic. Oh, so, yeah. man. That, yeah, someone helped it with a stick, but they were pretty rough. But, yeah. <laughs> Just prodded it with a stick. I'm helping, yeah. honest. Yeah, but I digress. Um, yeah. Sea crates, really cool. There's one called the St. Giron's Sea Crate. And uh, I read this paper which said it had an energy budget 1,000 times less than a seabird eating the same fish. Because these snakes eat fish. Um, that's something that we do love with reptiles in general i mean we've talked about the gila monsters and stuff talk about efficiency when you get to cold-blooded stuff nothing comes close no it's crazy to sustain themselves swimming around in the sea um they only need to catch and eat 0.0044 grams of fish per minute um per minute oh for goodness sake that's not a particularly relatable uh rate well what I, it means is I, if that I, they'd have to catch, well, I mean, how many times? Every hundred minutes, they'd need four and a half grams of fish. Every how many minutes? Mm, well, per minute, times it by a hundred. That goes up into, oh no, yeah, so they need 0.4 grams of fish for a hundred minutes. Okay, how many minutes in a day? 1,440. So 14 grams of fish a day. I would take that deal. If I could be as efficient as a sea crate, I would do it. Yeah, but you're weird. You don't like eating. Yeah, but 14 grams, that's just downright cheap. That's a bargain. Yeah. Even if it no, had it to would... be fish, I'd still do it. I mean, it would be like a sardine each per day. Yeah. If that. Yeah, I mean, that's talk about low impact. Yeah, that would be great, actually. If we could evolve to be like that, we'd have a much better chance of... Yeah, get on it, evolution. The, uh, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. But anyway, these these uh, these Saint Giron sea crates, um, their energy budget's really low, and they kind of dive in a really leisurely manner. They move around really slowly, um, and because they return to land, when they catch a fish, they warm up on the land and just spend a bit of time digesting. But um, because they only catch a fish sort of every five or six days on average. Um, in that time they're diving and surfacing constantly so they're just constantly on the hunt for fish um diving down to up to 40 meters which is pretty deep um but more commonly sort of 10 but anyway once they've eaten a fish it can sometimes take them a few days swimming just to get back to land and digest it so their life their lifestyle is pretty hardcore they're just constant cycle of swimming around for days on end Floating catching about. a fish yeah, yeah. Well, swimming back to land to digest the fish and then starting the whole process again. Yeah, I mean, that, that to me, that seems pretty similar to a lot of seabird lifestyles where you spend most of your time fishing, then you go back and, you know, I suppose, give it to whatever other seabird, be that young or whatever, and, and rinse and repeat. Mm. That's very true. It's just a way yeah, of the that... sea. <laughs> the way of the ocean. Yeah, that's from Cook et al. 2016, that information. Cool. Yeah. But the takeaway message is, there's two groups, Hydrophonae and Latacordinae. And, uh, yeah. And I'll tell you what, the big phylogenetic paper for all this um, stuff, it's a Sanders et al. paper from 2013, which looks at the sort of uh, how do they say it? the rapid radiation of sea snakes? Um, and just looking at one of those subfamilies, but that seems to be the go-to authority currently, as in most up-to-date phylogenetic analysis on some of these sea snakes. It's well worth a read. Is it well worth a read, though, Ben, or is it just you like it? Um, I mean, it's well worth a read if you need reference <laughs> material to dig into it. I, mean, like, I think it's, it's... I'm not going to say me like a, go read it casually, because it won't be a casual read. It sounds to me like a read the abstract and look at the uh, pictures. Mate, pictures, they say a thousand words. Well, especially uh, in the case of a phylogenetic tree, they often contain a thousand words. <laughs> <laughs> Best of both worlds, mate. <laughs> right, uh... Do you want to introduce the first paper? Right. 
So this is uh, Goran, Bustamante and Shine, uh, published in Current Biology in 2017, so nice and new, Industrial Melanism in the Sea Snake, Imidocephalus annulatus. Nice. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Adequate pronunciation. That was fine. That was fine, yeah. Emidocephalus annulatus is the turtle-headed sea snake, so named because it looks like a turtle and it's got this weird beak, which most snakes don't have. It's not really a beak. It's got, like, modified scales on the front of its... Mm. Well, on the top jaw, it's got one each side, these modified scales, which kind of uses for rasping the eggs of gobies off rocks and coral, which is what it eats. Take that, gobies. Um, Yeah, well, gobies, you know... I don't know. I like gobies, actually. They can change colour and they've got funny faces. But still, <laughs> this, uh, yeah. Oh, I really like the name on this one as well. Emido is um, ancient Greek for turtle and cephalus is obviously ancient Greek for head. So the generic name means turtle head. But shouldn't you um, hate that because it's an animal named after another animal? Uh, yeah, they kind of get a pass when they use ancient Greek, though, because that's just like an extra layer of kind of nuance and complexity which i like hmm. i feel like but that's a little that's hypocritical of you ah oh, god it is actually isn't it yeah. yeah maybe i should maybe i should just change my mind no i'm gonna stick with it i like it and uh yeah turtle heading is quite funny it's quite a funny weird little <laughs> phrase which means it's something quite funny and a bit naughty so yeah but uh this species is found in the waters of tropical australia from the timor sea to the southwestern pacific it mm. also occurs in the Philippines and in New Caledonia, which is a really cool place in of itself, and the Loyalty Islands nearby. Um, it really likes shallow water. It's associated with uh, water less than 15 metres deep with coral and sand. So it's got, a good, it's got a good taste in terms of nice snorkelling beaches to live on. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Living the, the data life. for this, yeah, and the data for this study was actually collected from people snorkeling which is just like how you can be a herpetologist and go snorkeling seems grossly unfair that you can have it both ways like that but Uh, there you go some people have yeah you need to work with sea snakes saltwater crocodiles or turtles yeah i don't know i wouldn't be the first in line to snorkel with a crocodile well no the crocodiles snorkel with you (laughs) what like this makes no sense (laughs) anyway like I said, these little freaks eat fish eggs, which is kind of unusual for a snake to be eating fish eggs. Uh, yeah, they scrape them off the coral. Um, there's also a suspicion that their their social behaviour and they have friends. Um, yes, I, I read I read the paper by Shine. I don't know. I wasn't hundred percent sold. The, the, the on one it. about the consistent capture um, ones over time. Yes. Yes. Uh, cryptic sociality in sea snakes. Mm. Yeah, I'm a little bit dubious about that being. I don't know. I don't know. I I felt. It... I felt like there were there's better evidence out there for cryptic sociality in snakes. Yeah, um, it was also weird because there was a suggestion that they spend time traveling from deep water to shallow water, but they were only surveying the shallow water, so they don't know what they're doing in the deep water, and it's like, well, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Uh, the analyses didn't seem that robust to me. I didn't really, I didn't really think that the, con- well, they didn't really make any conclusions that were firm. But I didn't feel like what they were s- saying really demonstrated what they were suggesting it did well. Um, I'm ready to be corrected though. Yeah, yeah. But anyway. No, I got the same sort of. I got, I got the same sort of thing where I, I moved on to other papers that I felt proved the yeah. point better. But um, yeah, that's completely irrelevant. <laughs> No, it's not. It's sea snakes, so it is relevant. What am I talking about? <laughs> You're irrelevant. Yeah, so uh, anyway, that one funny thing about that Shine et al. 2005 paper, I'd be interested to hear other people's perspectives on that paper, actually. Um, but it was all Shines. All four authors were Shines, so I think maybe it yes. was a family holiday turned research trip, which sounds awesome. I think that's a good way to get your kids involved in uh, yeah. in research. Get them on a paper. But Dad, I don't want to research sea snakes. <laughs> I said get that draft to me by the beginning of next week. <laughs> get your snorkel on and get in the sea. We're, we're researching sea snakes. What do you, you know, mean? have fun. <laughs> this citation's 20 years old. Find something new. 
<laughs> oh, good times. Yeah, so anyway, this paper we're on now, we're back on the industrial melanin. Um, so the story goes that Claire Guiran, who is the lead author of this study, who's a marine biologist from the University of New Caledonia, um, who was kind of an occasional helper of Shines collecting sea snakes, uh, she spotted a paper by Chatelaine et al. about Parisian pigeons. And yes, the pigeon paper's neat. I like this because this is something that people just see every day, with darker pigeons supposedly being more successful in urbanised areas. And it's suggested that the pigeons in those urban areas are uh, pushing, or, or whatever mechanism internally in the pigeon, is removing heavy metals from inside the pigeon to pigments in feathers so they don't have to deal with them, hence the darker pigment. And so yes. more darker pigeons in heavily polluted urban areas and more successful because of it. Yes, and so based on that, Guaran noticed that there were groups of snakes in certain areas which had darker pigments in their skin and areas where the snakes were more banded. So this is the latter corder. The species we're looking at in this paper is the, uh, yeah, the emidocephalus that we were just talking about, the turtle-headed snake. Yeah. And, um, yeah, there was a suggestion that the snakes which had darker pigments were found in areas with heavy metal pollution, either runoff from mining operations. Um, I think that was the majority of actually. Yes, there's, a, there's another one that, that starts... If- like, if people want the actual details of the mining operation, there's a Bonnet et al. paper from 2014 that look at all the sort of fish and coral reef contamination coming out of uh, sort of the New Caledonian areas and the impacts that's having on uh, the sort of marine environment. That's the sort of paper that gives the background to what's being done to the environment, which seems pretty substantial. Right. So um, they're living in areas which seem to have more heavy metal pollution, they're darker. And so the suggestion that this paper is making is that the snakes are ingesting the heavy metals and then sequestering them in their skin um, via means of darker pigment. And that because of the amount of heavy metals that are in the water and in the things they're eating, potentially, it conveys a selective advantage for them to be darker so that the poisonous metals are being removed to their skin. Yes. Which and also which makes sense. That they are removing that skin more frequently. Yes, they shed their skin more. Yeah, um, yeah. The other trouble was they actually couldn't test. They couldn't test the skins of the turtle-headed sea snakes because they shed their skin underwater. They're fully aquatic, mm. so they instead tested the Latacorda species, the actual sea, the sea crates, rather than the proper, proper sea snakes. And they found that they have more heavy metals in their dark bands and their light bands um, because. The heavy metals bind to melanin, which is in the dark pigment in the skin. And so the dark bands contain more of these noxious metals than do the light bands. Um, so in, inevitably, if there's a snake which is completely dark, based on that, it's going to have more heavy metals in its skin. Because yes. the heavy metals bind to the melanin and they end up in the skin. Um, so... That's really cool, and that's an interesting finding. But I think drawing the conclusion immediately that there's a causative link between the pollution and the snakes becoming black, I think that's a bit of a stretch. Well, I think the bit that sort of drives that home is showing that certain more melanistic populations are found in higher polluted areas, right? That's the bit that yeah. drives that home. It's like what, there's got to be something selecting for that at some level because how do yeah. you explain that pattern of, of melanism to you know, not yeah i don't know i i just i think to be honest with you i i, I think it's a cool paper and i think um i probably i'm probably being overly harsh because for some reason i felt really cynical today but <laughs> um one thing i think put me off it before i even read it was um how it was reported to begin with because, I mean, there was popular articles in, like, New Scientist, in Science, Nature. I think National Geographic did one. Mm. Um, and they were all just, like, so sensational. Like, oh, we found industrial melanism in a steak. And I think that probably turned me off from the get-go. Um, because, really, that's not... They can't conclusively say that that is what they found, in my opinion. Mm. 
No, perhaps not. There might be other things playing into the reason why there's there's melanistic snakes in one place and not yeah. another. I mean, I mean, there are plenty of reasons. One they even suggest is that there may be a differences in UV levels in clearer, shallower waters, and that might account for the differences because you've got different oceanic sort of situations between different sites. Um, so, I mean, there's lots of stuff playing into this. I mean, certainly the banding stuff to me, the first thing that screams to me is uh, the whole aposomatic and predator pressure and mimicry stuff. I, yes. I have no idea yeah. about the marine environment and what sort of pressure these snakes are put under, but that's where I would be directing my first line of, of, of research. But um, mm. that's because I'm completely yeah. ignorant of the actual ecosystem they're in. Yeah. Yeah. I think... Um, yeah. Oh, man. I think probably the one thing which turned me off a little bit was the last sentence. However, the selective advantages underlying that common pattern may involve anti-predator camouflage and physiological benefits in insects versus trace element excretion in pigeons and sea snakes. Seems a bit presumptive to me. Yeah, well, I think that's what... I mean, we're looking at a current biology paper that has some sort of exciting... Uh, like first time scene sort of stuff. That's what current biology do. Is they they they're throwing out cutting edge, high impact, but also very newsworthy stuff. That's what they sort of select mm. for. So, in that sense, if it's a little bit shaky around the edges, but there's a very interesting uh, story here, which there is. I think it's absolutely justified getting it out there, and it, this is going to prompt a hell of a lot more questions. Mm. and in that sense it's absolutely worthy i don't think really stuff is overstated i mean i understand your uh reservations with accepting the mechanism but i don't think they really you know the whole discussion is talking about that mechanism that they're taking as red but throughout it is with shoulds and possiblies and things i don't think go too far Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, you're probably right. I don't know. I was just uh yeah, I just don't I still don't buy it really to be honest, but yeah. Yeah, well, no, you don't have to buy it. You absolutely don't have to buy it. But I think it's serving its purpose as getting people talking and getting people uh considering this as a pollution is not only changing things in terms of mortality and stuff but it's changing the sort of morphology of species and i think that's something mm. worth being aware of and worth considering and warrants yeah, further further research doesn't it yeah 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 i think you're right yeah i probably being quite harsh i just reread the paper while you were talking and uh yeah i was probably a bit harsh but still i think to be honest what actually happened was my initial discomfort about this was reading i read i saw the articles written about it before i saw the paper and i think i was already ticked off like well that's just and in fairness to shine and guaran and everyone they haven't actually been too no i think that's always going to be the way the way these papers are reported always going to overstate stuff because yeah you've got to get people clicking but uh i think it's kind of neat Uh, i think it's kind of neat and i think it's kind of a neat case study that should be followed up on. Um, yeah. You know, it would be amazing is if you find it in some sort of terrestrial species. Yeah. Well, I mean, I got reading about heavy metal sequestration quite a lot after this. I was reading about crustaceans and, um, you know, lobsters and crayfish and all these things and how they do it. And, you know, it's quite common in um, limpets as well. Mm. And, um, yeah, well, I just did some reading on heavy metal sequestration. There's a review by Ahern et al. in 2004 for crustaceans. Um, and there's a there's yeah. something called met- metallotheanines, which are proteins which bind to metals really easily, um, even when there's really low concentration of the metal. And then they park them in lysosomes uh, where they kind of somehow digest. It gets a bit mysterious after that. I didn't really understand it, slash we don't mm. quite know, or we, or we didn't in 2004. There's lots of other mechanisms. Well, see, this is the sort of detail that you need to identify to really prove that conclusively don't yeah. you need to see that happen in a sea snake and show the movement of these uh, heavy metals and then you can be pretty confident that it is an actual mechanism being used 
to deal with this uh, increased pollution. Yeah, and I just it it just seemed bizarre to me that the the melanin that these heavy metals ended up in the skin. I mean, I wonder because you know sea snakes can slightly breathe through their skin. Yeah, what was it? Something like twenty. Got some ludicrous amount of oxygen they get through their skin. Um, yeah, it is twenty three or twenty five percent or something like that. Um, so I wondered if maybe during that gas exchange, the heavy metals were sneaking in and being secured in the skin. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, uh, I don't know. It's all just. It all, it, yeah, I think potentially. It's it's all just a bit vague. Anyway, should we should we move on? Yeah, was going to stop? Yeah, twelve to thirty three percent of oxygen through their skin while they're swimming. That's just mind mm, mind blowing. It's a snake, not a frog. What's it doing? Um, <sighs> Freaky frog snake. Yeah. Anyway, I'll stop whinging now. I did enjoy this paper and I thought it was cool and it certainly highlighted a good idea. But yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I just I just got left feeling like I didn't under- understand because I wasn't given enough information, you know? Well, that's current, current bio, man. It's trimmed down for the sake of brevity. It really yeah. is. Yeah. Maybe I'm just being slightly daft as well. I, spent, I got really, really caught up on it earlier on. <laughs> I, I think I've come across really badly in what I've said, but yeah, thinking. Well, a yeah, quick apology mind. now. The all is forgiven, wow. right? Anyway, so should we move on to the, the second paper? Yes. Yeah. Yes, please, Tom, shut up. <laughs> okay, this one is entitled Brishu, Cot, Lilywhite, Belale, Lalir, and Gasper published in 2016 and it's entitled oceanic circulation models help to predict global biogeography of pelagic yellow-bellied sea snake and it's published in biology letters uh, and this one's open source so you can read it if you'd like yes and uh the kind of this was an awesome paper i love i absolutely love this one okay so this paper is kind of set in a world in which Recent research has suggested that pelagic tetrapods, which is, you know, lizards, snakes, birds and mammals and frogs, maybe. I don't know. Don't know if frogs are tetrapods. I assume they are. And uh, yeah, anyway. (laughs) Tetrapod isn't that four leg. Yeah, I know. It doesn't make much sense, but it's kind of like they all descended from that one amphibian thing, I think. You know, that blob (laughs) animal, you know, that one blob animal that we all came from once upon a time type thing. Uh Anyway, paper two, um, yeah. Recent research suggested that pelagic tetrapods, so ocean animals that live in the open ocean, like birds, whales, and turtles, they're not just drifting around aimlessly in the sea, right? They're actually moving around, doing deliberate stuff. They think, oh, I'm going to migrate over here because that's where the sardines are. Obviously, whales don't eat sardines, but some birds do. Uh, And other times, they'll go into nice warm waters and they'll mate and sort of like have a nursery for their young, yada, yada. Um, and turtles too, obviously, they, they go, you know, huge oceanic distances mm. to lay their eggs. We talked about the but, turtle stuff in episode, whatever the turtle episode was. It was episode six, Turtle Tides. Nice. Yeah. Good work anyway, remembering. <laughs> well, I looked it up before the episode because I, I, I thought it might come up. <laughs> uh, yeah, but juvenile turtles, like we said, they drift around, you know, crazy distances because they're juvenile turtles and they can't swim that well. And they end up just wherever they end up because of ocean currents. Uh, the focal study, the focal species of this study is Hydrophis pluturus, which is the yellow-bellied sea snake. Absolutely so beautiful sea snakes. Mate, it's Stunning. probably one of the best looking snakes out there. Yeah, yeah, man, they are great. Black and yellow, just beautiful sort of lateral stripes that turn into blobs towards the tail. Great looking snakes. Yeah, and the tail's got like zigzaggy bits. Yeah. That bit of the tail is called the paddle. Did you know that? Oh, yeah, the flipper flapper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know. The uh the bum fin. They uh <laughs> that's so cheap. They're another one another name for them is the pelagic sea snake because they're the only truly pelagic uh sea snake, so they are completely unreliant on either benthic or coastal environments and they rely. Aren't they one of the most widely distributed tetrapod species in the world? Yes, maybe even the most widely distributed. Yes. They are thought to cover two-thirds of the Earth's circumference. See, I apparently. find that very impressive. Because if you were to point to me to say, hey, look at that house sparrow, and where do they range? They've got to be coming close. Like, house sparrows are everywhere. 
Yeah. Well, it might not be the most... Well... But then they've got a lot of ocean to play with, being across the Pacific, so maybe that gives them the edge. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They're in the Pacific and Indian Oceans, aren't they? They're Mm. not in the Atlantic. No Atlantic. Not yet. Uh, Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's unlikely they'll end up... Uh, Maybe. Uh, Anyway. Give them a couple of million years. Well, they've only existed. They've only evolved two million years ago. So, yeah, yeah, give them a chance. They're They're fresh on the earth. And with climate yeah, they're change, really... they're probably going to just make it even easier for them all the time. Well, maybe. Or, well, it could be that the middle, the very centre of their range becomes inhospitable and then they end up getting north-south divide. I don't know. Because mm. if they get too hot, they don't do well. And if they get too cold, they don't do well either. Um, but yeah, they. did you know that they tie themselves in knots when they shed? How well, crazy is that? I, I mean, I suppose it makes sense. It seems bizarre. I mean, I didn't know that. As long as they yeah. can get themselves untied, I see no problems. <laughs> the, the, yeah, well, they, the, the shed skins that come off them often have a knot tied in the skin as it comes off. It, that's, that's crazy. And then, um, yeah, they call it knotting, this behaviour. And mm. I actually have a video of it, which I've posted in the show notes. So check it out. Oh, fantastic. YouTube. Yeah, multimedia. Um, but yeah, so more background on Hydrophus platurus, the yellow-bellied cowardly sea snake. In the open ocean, they occur in really long lines um, where there's like debris that builds up, uh, where currents meet and stuff like that. They call them slicks. And loads of them can be found in association with these slicks. Like hundreds or even thousands of individual snakes can end up in these slicks. It's not obvious where they go there on purpose because that's where the fish are or whether they end up there because they're drifting just like the flotsam and jetsam that's in the water. Um, mm. yeah but all they do is all they do in these slicks seems to be feeding um, and knotting to shed their skins uh, no one's ever seen them mating as far as I could tell yes well I mean snakes are hard enough to study on land where we can get to them relatively easy I, I would <laughs> goodness knows how difficult it is studying a species of snake in the middle of the ocean at least they're yellow yeah well, yeah, but that's the thing, isn't it? They're kind of black on top. They're oh. countershaded. Deceptive little snakes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I thought this paper was really cool and the figures in the paper are, are insanely nice. Yes. So should we get into actually what the paper did? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in much the same way the turtle paper we discussed with, what was it, uh, leatherback turtles and their dispersal, or was it loggerheads? It was a type, yes, of, it was... type of turtle in their dispersal. This is another modelling paper <laughs> basically looking at where these snakes will end up if they were to just drift on ocean currents and to test that to see how sort of viable a population would be if it was just relying on ocean currents. Because as we've alluded to, if it gets too hot, if it bumps over, was it, 33 degrees uh, Celsius? Yeah. can't handle it and if it drops below like 19, 18 they can't hack it either so you've got these very nice stable and consistent uh, thresholds that you, you know an upper band and lower band that you can base uh, viability of a population on um, so that's exactly what they did they modelled a whole bunch of uh, what did they term them as inert particles so these are yeah. snakes being modelled like they're not putting any effort into going one way or another. Very simple, yeah, but tests the ocean circulation stuff rather well. Yeah, and they had really good data on past ocean circulation. So they had data from 2002 to 2008, which was realistic oceanic movements, including the temperature, the sea level and the salinity of the sea. And they basically just dropped loads and loads of these snakes in the sea yeah. at the places where they had records for the snakes being found. They computed 10 years worth of the model and they saw where these snakes would have ended up. Yes, um, and they even included some sort of weird outlier uh population centers so like bottom of south uh africa a little bit at the bottom of australia and somewhere off japan as east so they're testing absolutely almost every single instance of a reported uh yellow-bellied sea snake they've have ever been yeah and the method they're using makes sense because like you said they they didn't 
they just assume that they drift aimlessly, which kind of makes good sense because they're small. They're only 70 centimetres long and also light. They only weigh 140 grams. Mm. And despite the fact that they are pelagic sea snakes, they actually aren't great at swimming. Um, well, and you, they you kind of just bob around. Yeah, and you'd expect if they were doing any swimming, that would improve their chances of survival. So what this is doing is giving an absolute bottom-of-the-line conservative estimate of if they couldn't swim, this is how they'd survive. And you presume that yeah. they swim to make their chances better. Because yeah. the assumption that they would yeah. swim and make their chances worse is, it seems nonsensical. Yes. Well, I'm sure there is the odd one. <laughs> yeah, the I'm one going that, south! <laughs> I'm going to South Africa. And then just died in cold waters. Yeah. Like you say, if it gets below 19 degrees water temperature, um, they, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten days, they're goners. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, well, they, they did this, didn't they? They ran all their models and, uh, they produced some absolutely sublime figures. Really, really cool. And, um, yeah, as it turns out, snakes, which originated at central latitudes between 20 degrees north and south. So, you know, a ring around the equator in these two oceans were the ones who were most likely to survive long term. Mm. And, uh, yeah, those that are too far north, like you said, in waters south of Africa or sort of like east and west south of Australia, they were unlikely to survive past a year because those places were lame and that's not where they're supposed to be. <laughs> they drifted off, they got chilly and they died savage deaths alone in the ocean. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, but I just thought this, this paper using this model, it really, really neatly explains the biogeographical distribution of this species. It does. Um, yeah. It all makes perfect sense. Every single diagram they've used is like just exactly what you want to see um the the one the one which is uh the one which is like light uh more red depending on how many of the populations mixed shows that there's really good population mixing as well in between these currents yes. drifting around they're all mixing together in the good parts of their range 18 different populations are mixing in the center of the range um which explains why this species is not very genetically distinct throughout the range they're very much a kind of homogenous mass of genes yeah, it's the opposite of what we were, you know, we've discussed with previous ones where you have little subpopulations and stuff like this. These guys seem relatively homogenous, and that is kind of a good, uh, a good thing that if a part of their population takes a big hit, it's going to be very easy to recover because you've got this high gene flow, and you can just replace it with individuals from somewhere else. So conservation yeah. perspective, very good, very robust. Yeah, and just in terms of the modelling. Some of the imaginary snakes that they modelled drifted incredibly far. Crazy in distances, man. What was it? 100,000 kilometres? Yeah, yeah. And Across uh, how many that's years? the maximum. <laughs> 10 years, 10 years. Just so it's 108,000 kilometres. So, you know, 10,000 kilometres a year. They're just drifting around eating fish. Yeah. I mean, what a way to live your life. You're never in the same place twice. It's just they're just going <laughs> and going. And then that was the maximum. But then the average was 34,000 miles. So mm. that's an average. That's, a, that's an unbelievable distance. And then... Sorry, yeah, 30,000 kilometres. Sorry, kilometres. Yes, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the, you know, they were also going east and west, not just north and south. Uh, yeah, just really, really awesome. And yeah, the, uh, they mentioned at the beginning of the paper that recapture rates of this species were really low. And I mean, it's it not exactly sense, surprising, man. is it? Yeah, what you're going <laughs> to drop them back in the sea and they're going to be gone. They're going to drift off. The only way you're going to recapture these guys if your sampling effort covers the entire Pacific Ocean. <laughs> like, no chance. Absolutely no, no chance. <clears throat> it's really awesome. It makes you think there must be some kind of. I mean, oh, it's mental. The, you know, Does... one's born, it, it drifts 108,000 kilometres. Maybe it reproduces there, and then it potentially its offspring somehow drift back or yeah. something like that. All just sort of you know, maybe they drift back and, over the course of four or five. Yeah, yeah, absolutely awesome. Really fun paper, and like it's free as well, so everyone should have a look at it just for the pictures. The pictures yeah, biology sweet. letters, open access, very oh. nice. Highly recommend. Um, yeah, and so I have you got anything else to say on that one? Uh, I don't think so. No. No. Cool. Well, should we move on to our uh, special segment, our treat segment? <gasps> Species of the bi-week. Yeah, we need a jingle. We so badly need a jingle. Da, 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 da. Species of the bi-week. <laughs> uh, except for this week, it's the, bi the subspecies of the bi-week. In the interests of maintaining a theme over 
our usually scrupulous standards for a species. We've gone for a, a subspecies. But, I mean, you know, in a beautiful twist of fate, it's a subspecies of the snake we were just discussing. Yeah. And what really is a subspecies? Well, yeah. I'm going to stop know, you there pretty... and not let you answer the question and move on. <laughs> uh, stop, you're boring me. <laughs> Yeah, so this one is by Bassesson Galbraith, and that's it, 2017, a new subspecies of sea snake, Hydrophis platurus xanthos, from Golfo Duce, Costa Rica. Published in Zoo Keys. Zoo Keys, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, it's a yellow one. Yeah, um, the most yellow one. The one that has no real black on it bar a couple of spots yeah the occasional like pure dot. banana snake yeah they're so cool <laughs> they're so cool they're just like canary yellow yeah just straight um, to the point just yeah yellow and stunning I, I um, think that's all we need to say really isn't it well <laughs> we could get away with just saying that but i think it's worth talking about how they're super range restricted in like this one little this this golfo I guess, um, yeah, and a fjord-like tropical embayment. <laughs> they're not exactly. They're not just yellow. They're in this special little place and weird behavioural differences. So yeah, all the other individuals in this species, outside of this subspecies, are diurnal, diurnal hunting. These guys nocturnal hunting. Absolutely bizarre, like complete switch. Um, yeah. And while the other ones prefer, like, sheltered, steady waters, these guys like the rough waters. Yeah, they're just non-traditional hydrophis platyruses, aren't they? Yeah, um, very Yeah, you mentioned odd. the bay. They live in this, I'm going to call it a bay. To me, it looks like a bay. But it's got really weird topography where there's very unlikely to be any mixing between it and the sea. It's so much so that it sometimes becomes anoxic. Well, exactly. Um, it's, it's more fjord or um, lock. Yeah, yeah, lock. Oh, I suppose golfo, maybe. <clears throat> yeah, it's a golfo, or maybe it's a dulce. I don't know, but yeah, they are—they're yellow, like we said. And the reason they're called, you know, Hydrophis platurus xanthos is because xanthic is the name for a yellow organism, because xanthin is a yellow pigment, and therefore they've named it xanthos. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what else have I got on this little creature? Yeah, you said, didn't you, they prefer turbulent water, whereas the uh, pelagic ones prefer very still water. Mm. Um, and they're hunting at night, and they they have a weird hunting strategy where they assume this, like, sinusoidal position, like a big series of S's, and they just hang on the surface with their mouth agape underneath the water, and they ambush fish. So stupid fish... They think that they can shelter underneath this bright yellow piece of rubbish. But as it turns out, <laughs> it's a snake and it eats them. That's that. Job done. Yeah. You've That's been it. eaten by the pelagic banana snake. Yeah. Yeah. And part of this paper, they um, interviewed loads of fishermen and local tour guides. And they'd said they, you know, they never see, they never ever see the ones with the black backs. They never see the traditional platyrus mm. in the Golfo. It never happens. And then in the course of the study, they found three. Um, but... Apparently, the fishermen, when they heard this, were flummoxed, which goes to show that they were telling the truth, and it's very rare to find them. And it did coincide with a uh, hurricane, so perhaps they all got washed in. And also, the one adult they found that was in the Golfo that was the traditional non-subspecies species uh, was really unwell. It looked it quite covered poorly, in al and they, algae, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, and they hypothesized that um, it was suffering because it couldn't deal with the warmer water in the yes. bay. So this, and that's one of the things they're sort of suggesting why they're yellow is to counter the sort of thermal conditions that they're living in. And this is slightly harsher, hotter environment. Yeah. Yeah. Really yeah. neat. Probably just very slowly speciating. And uh, yeah. give, them, give, didn't have give to... them a couple of million years and maybe they won't be a subspecies any longer. Yeah. Yeah. Quite possibly. Well, that is really cool. They bring up a very interesting a point that we've talked about a lot, and that is that 
because they're so yellow and so distinctive and so kind of gorgeous, they are at risk from collection. Just straight yeah. up people going in there, grabbing them because they're like, I want a pure yellow super snake. Um, that's a big deal, man. That is a big deal. And I did want to bring up the fact that they uh, cite a Reading et al. 2010 paper, which is quite a nice one that looks at different species across Europe and places and showing this sort of general global or certainly intercontinental uh, decline in snake species. And, you know, when you put it in that sort of context, these guys have to be protected and they kind of have to be protected now before stuff gets real, you know. Yeah. 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 They kind of, um, yeah, they kind of broke the fourth wall. They were like, we have concern that taxonomic recognition without protection could lead to greater interest from global collectors. Yeah, man, they used to straight up say it. I, lo- we I, I really anyway. like that. <laughs> well, yeah. But I mean, what, you're going to not do it and then they're not recognised and then there's... How do you protect something that's not recognised? Well, yeah, but equally you could argue that it could have all happened at once. Oh, you... That's a, I don't know. That's a I, big just playing devil's ask. advocate. Just playing devil's advocate. I agree with you. I think it's yeah, good. And, well, you're uh, going to get, like government institutes and you know the actual people that can push protection to agree to something well they're already tourists you know they're already a a tourist attraction um so it's not like the government's completely naive of them you know bright yellow snakes don't go unnoticed in in the (laughs) sea in a bay where there's loads of tourists like you know it's not a surprise to anyone so yeah I don't know, I'm just saying. I agree with you. I think it's good, and hopefully they'll be protected. Um, I mean, who the hell wants a sea snake as a pet? Like, Jesus Christ, what are you going to do? Put it in a paddling pool? It's mental. No, they'll, um, they'll, they'll preserve them and give them away as keychains. Yeah, well, yellow doesn't hold up in preservative anyway. They'll just turn white and look the same as every other museum specimen after a year. So, Yeah, but the people collecting them probably don't know that until they've already done them, and by that time the damage is done, right? Yeah, yeah, very bad. Or they just paint them yellow. That's the sort of crap that would happen, isn't it? They just paint them yellow. They stain them white. Go, oh no, it's gone white. Better just tipex in the yellow. <laughs> Job done. <laughs> oh god. Might hey, as well so, just put um, a banana in a thing, make it snake shaped. I mean, bananas and snakes do have some similarities. <laughs> so, I think that's yellow snakes covered, isn't it? You got anything else on these little? little creatures uh no man i think i think it's just a very cool example of a field creating this like little subpopulation that are that are really quite distinct and stunning yeah no i think, yeah. it's, I think it's really remarkable yeah i i i enjoyed it greatly actually cool so uh yeah whatever you got any other business yeah we forgot to mention that there's a new issue of iherp do you know, I was just about to say, I was just about to say that. How funny is that? Yeah. Yeah, good. Because we missed it last time. I think it had just come out as we were recording the episode or something. And yes. So we just weren't quite clued in. But it's out. Yeah. Freely available for anybody to go grab and read all about. A lot of lizard stuff. A lot of lizard stuff in this one. Uh, geckos and some cool shingleback stories. Oh yeah, the shingleback one's awesome. Shingleback stuff is wicked. So yeah, I hope. What else was there? There was a cool one about um, Galapagos. The turtles. The tortoises. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a, yeah. Uh, there's some really nice photography as per usual. It's just an awesome edition of a really cool magazine. So yeah, everyone should check it out. Yeah, man. Uh, any other business aside from that? Any other business? I don't think so. I don't think I've no? come across anything particularly noteworthy to bring up to people. Um, apologies for last episode being a wee bit late. Hopefully this one isn't. Yeah, that was, oh, was just a bit of a... Everything added up, didn't it? But um, hopefully it'll be all yeah. right this time. I think we'll be all right. Internet's holding out. We're surviving. um yeah i don't have anything else to say really um i'll put a link to the new episode new episode new edition of i hurt magazine in the um show notes and yes yeah that video about the yellow-bellied sea snakes and all our other 
uh, references, etc. Wicked. Cool. Um, yeah, well... Oh, and we're going to have an interview coming out as well soon, aren't we? Uh, potentially, yes. Yeah, yeah. Potentially. Top secret. Oh, it's going to be a surprise. Uh, yeah, and that's about it. So, yeah, I think that probably say thanks for listening, really. Well, and if you, if you want to get in touch, uh, what have we got? We've got herbhighlights at gmail.com. We've got yes. at herbhighlights on the old Twitters. And we have, what do we have? Facebook slash herbhighlights on the Facebooks. I think that yeah. pretty much covers everything. And you can now follow Ben Marshall on Twitter as well, from what I hear. That's <gasps> big news. Yeah, I took. Uh, yeah, I dove in. <laughs> at Benjamin. Is it at Ben underscore M underscore Marshall? Yes. Yeah. So uh, follow him. I follow me at Thomas. I can't remember my own one, but yeah. Isn't it just Thomas underscore Major? Yeah, I think it might be. Yeah. There you go. Don't advertise it enough, but yeah. <laughs> There you yours go. is gonna be yours is gonna be so good with all the photos of snakes. Oh, all the photos of dead snakes, more like. Uh, yeah, bad luck. But um, there's many more snakes in the forest. I hope. Yeah, you say that. We can't find them. Ah, oh, that's brutal. I ain't kidding. Can't find nothing. <laughs> well, stop talking to me and go out there and look for some snakes, Ben. Can't. They're diurnal. <laughs> yeah fair alright well yeah thanks for listening everybody and we'll see you for episode 16 awesome thanks for listening Mr. Blobby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mr. Blobby's a tetrapod, right? <laughs>